Please stand if you are able for the reading of God's word. I will be reading Mark chapter 1, verses 29 to 39. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. This is God's word. Amen. Good morning. It's good to be together with you this morning as we continue our study of the book of Mark this morning. Hope that you'll keep your Bibles open to Mark chapter 1 as we pray together and jump in. My gracious Master and my God, assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad the honor of your name. I pray, Lord, that you would do your work in us this morning as we read and learn from Mark chapter 1. Help us to behold Jesus and to rejoice in his love for us. We ask these things in his name. Amen. As we begin this morning, I want you to imagine with me that you are out on a hike somewhere in some remote location, maybe up on a mountain or in the woods in rural Maine somewhere. It's a beautiful day. You're enjoying yourself. You pause for a second and realize that you have lost the trail. At some point on your hike, while you were walking along, you were daydreaming, maybe listening to the birds and looking at wildflowers, and you were distracted, and the trail turned, and you kept walking. You turn around and attempt to retrace your steps, but after a little while, you don't find the trail, and you begin to question whether you're going the right direction at all. And now you're getting a little bit worried. After searching for a couple hours, you're still lost, and the sun is beginning to set. And even though you're trying to keep a level head, you are beginning to panic just a little bit. But at just that moment, you hear footsteps, and then another hiker appears, and you feel a wave of relief wash over you because you're going to be okay. But then the other hiker says to you, thank goodness I found you. I'm so lost, and I don't know where to go. And just like that, your hopes vanish again. The person that you thought would be able to help you, it turns out, is just as helpless as you are. 
And as night falls, fear grips your heart even more tightly than it had before because it seems like the one chance that you had has just slipped through your fingers. As the hours go by, your imagination turns the sound of every branch moving in the breeze into some wild animal that is about to gobble you up. But then you hear something else, the sound of a helicopter coming toward you. And as you wave your arms frantically, a searchlight finds you. And within minutes, you've been hoisted up into the arms of a rescuer who is going to deliver you to safety. Finally, someone who is actually able to help you has arrived. And your joy at that meeting is simply overwhelming. The nightmare of the last 12 hours or so is over. But as that helicopter climbs into the sky, you see something you couldn't see before. A wildfire is raging in all directions and moving toward the spot where you were sitting. You couldn't have known how much danger you were actually in until after you had been rescued and you looked back down. And sitting in that helicopter, you realize how close you really were to your, your own destruction, and your joy in your rescuer is somehow even greater than it was before. That's the joy that is underneath the passage that we're looking at this morning from Mark chapter 1. Because a rescuer has come. And in him we see that both the danger that we were in and his strength to overcome it are both greater than we knew before. In Capernaum, where this passage takes place, people are trying to figure out what to make of Jesus. He is like nothing they've ever seen before. But one thing that they can tell already is that he has a power and authority over things that they do not. They have struggled with illness and affliction with spiritual forces every day of their lives. And now, here is someone who is actually able to help them. And they eagerly welcome him with a mixture of curiosity and hope and desperation. But they don't yet see the real danger that Jesus has come to lift them from. And even though they are amazed at the signs of his power that are on display in this small village, they don't yet know, they can't possibly know yet, how far Jesus will go to see them to safety. In verse 29, we read that immediately he, Jesus, left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. In the passage that we looked at last week, Jesus called these first four disciples and then went into the synagogue on the Sabbath. And While he was there, he amazed people by teaching in a way that they had never seen before and then by casting out a demon in a show of strength that they have never seen before. And they respond in verse 27 with sheer amazement, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Afterward, people leave the synagogue, and they start telling others in town about these amazing events that they've just witnessed. And now, in verse 29, Jesus leaves the synagogue himself and crosses the street to Simon and Andrew's house, where he spent a lot of time early on in his ministry. Incidentally, it's a place that you can visit today if you want to. The remains of that house are still there. The structure that sits on the side right now is the remains of an ancient church, and underneath those remains is the remains, or are the remains rather, of a house. And there is broad consensus that that is the very house that it's mentioned here in this passage. I should say there's nothing mystical about it, it's just a pile of stones now. Going there, walking into those ruins doesn't make you any closer to Jesus, but it does ground us in the truth 
that Jesus is a historical figure, not a mythological one. And that can be a necessary reminder for us because of what Jesus is about to do in that house that does not fit anyone's expectations for what ought to be possible. And as we'll see, it didn't exactly fit the expectations of the people in Capernaum either. And the point that this passage is here to help us begin to grasp is that that is good. It is good that Jesus does not fit into the expectations that we make of him because we need him to be a greater savior than we expect that we will need. We need him to be a greater savior than we realize that we need. It begins with the news that Simon's mother-in-law was sick with some sort of fever. A fever could mean a lot of different things. And Mark, along with the other gospel writers, they don't tell us more about what's going on with her, and that's probably because they have no idea what's going on with her. But we do know that it was severe, that she was apparently confined to her bed, and we also know that fevers were commonly understood at this point in history to be the judgment of God, that someone was afflicted with a fever as a result of God's disappointment or disapproval of them. When someone got sick, people jumped to the conclusion that it was retribution for something that they had done. That's probably because of a misunderstanding about Deuteronomy 28, where God warned his people that he would strike them with fevers if they violated their covenant with him. So a common misconception arose around this time that every fever was the judgment of God. It's possible that Simon and Andrew thought the same thing, that they were caught up in this same misconception. And the reason I think that is because they choose this moment to tell Jesus about what is going on. They just watched Jesus rebuke a demon back at the synagogue. He has cast wickedness out, and that's got them scratching their heads and wondering, because that demon listened to him. I think they're still trying to process that, and they're wondering to themselves, if Jesus has dominion over demons, does he have dominion over other things too, maybe even fevers and the sinners that are afflicted by them? So when they get home, Mark says that they immediately told Jesus about what's going on with their mother-in-law. They're testing him, I think, in sort of a good way. They've known Jesus for a day, maybe a week at most. Mark is not exactly clear on the timeline, but we know that they, they, are, they are very new to their relationship with Jesus, and they're trying to figure out what to make of him. They know that he's different. He's not like anyone else that they've ever encountered in their whole lives. They've seen power and authority in him that they cannot explain. Very personally, when Jesus called them, come and follow me, they did it. They have felt very personally the power and authority that Jesus has, the dominion that he has over the heavens and the earth. They cannot explain it, but they want to know more about it. So they tell him about their sick mother-in-law, and then they watch to see what will happen. How far does Jesus' authority actually reach? And then, as they stand there watching to see what will happen, Jesus drew drew near to her took her by the hand and lifted her up, we read in verse 31. And immediately, she was well. The fever was gone. There are no incantations, no rituals, no concoctions of herbal remedies, just the hand of Jesus lifting her out of bed. And she was well. 
She was so healthy, in fact, that she jumps into action as a hostess. Mark says in verse 31 that she began to serve them. It's a complete transformation from her deathbed to a vibrant life, from the one being served because she cannot even serve herself or help herself to the one serving others. It foreshadows the way that the grace and deliverance of Christ will transform the lives of all of his people, not just to escape destruction, but into joyful life afterward. Charles Spurgeon, writing on this passage, says that when God's grace comes, the one who has been the object of the most anxiety becomes the happiest of all. The sinner, saved by sovereign grace, becomes the servant of the Lord. The patient becomes the hostess. In Capernaum, Jesus' presence and his power have begun to change everything. The light of his presence has begun to cast out darkness because he is the king who comes not just with the authority, but with the power to do what no one else can. Mark knows, as he writes chapter 1 of this gospel, he knows what other authors will eventually describe, like what Paul says in Colossians 1 where he describes Jesus as the one by whom all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Every power that you have ever encountered in your life, Jesus stands above them all. Paul wants you to know it. There is no one and nothing that can stand before him or rule over him. He is in a class by himself. Because as John says in the first chapter of his gospel, there has never been, nor will there ever be, a created thing that exists apart from his power, Jesus' power, to bring it into existence. Jesus exercises dominion over every atom of the universe because it was his rule and authority that caused them to appear in the first place. And as the author of Hebrews says in the opening of that book, it is by Jesus' power that the universe itself is held together. From planets in their orbits to electrons whizzing around nuclei, Jesus, in unimaginable power and authority, not only stands over it all, but actively upholds it all. This is the one who has come to visit Capernaum and Simon and Andrew's house. This is the one who drew near to their mother-in-law and lifted her out of her deathbed. I think Mark's gospel is organized in a way that helps us to begin to comprehend that reality, to begin to just even get the slightest inclination of what significance it is that the one who upholds the universe has stepped foot into it in a place called Capernaum. Thematically, the whole book can be divided into two halves, the first half of which is designed to reveal to us that Jesus is a king above all other kings with unmatched, unrivaled power and authority. Mark wants us to experience the same sheer wonder that Simon and the other disciples and the people of Capernaum are experiencing here in chapter 1. They don't know much about him yet, but they already know that he is different. His teaching in the synagogue has amazed people, and now two miracles on the same day has got people excited. In their homes and on the streets, people are whispering to one another. Verse 28 tells us that at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the region of Galilee. People are rushing back home from the synagogue to tell their families about what is happening, and they're asking one another, could it really be? Is it true? 
that someone, finally, someone has come who is actually able to help us. Until now, they've been struggling against things they had no power to overcome. They were lost, desperate, helpless, and many of them had tried everything else. They've stumbled around in the wilderness, and they are just as lost as they were before. Promises of help from others have proven absolutely powerless, but now Jesus has come. Later in Mark's gospel, he will tell the story of two people, a Jewish leader with a sick child and a woman who has been ill with a bleeding condition for years, and both of them come seeking Jesus for help when everything else that they have tried Everything else that they have tried has left them in even greater pain than they were before. Each of them was desperate and at the very end of their rope, but word has reached them that Jesus might be able to help, and so they go looking for him. In urgent, anxious conversations, someone has said to them, I know this is going to sound crazy, but there's a guy over there who can do things that nobody understands, that nobody can explain. It's like when he speaks, even sickness listens to him and obeys him. I've never seen anything like it, and I don't understand it. But if you really need help, I think he's your only hope. That's exactly what we see happening here in chapter 1. We don't have to speculate about that, even though we don't have any of the conversations and the specifics of those urgent anxious whisperings recorded for us here. We see their result in the next paragraph. In verse 32, Mark tells us that that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. Mark's point here is that Jesus' presence has captivated this town. People are talking, they are excited, and in their desperation, they're willing to go and see if it's true. The whole community of Capernaum has been talking, and now they are at the door of Simon's house. Mark includes the detail that it was at sundown because that marked the end of the Sabbath. Jewish law prevented people from working on the Sabbath, and tradition demanded that they not even leave their homes that day except to go to worship at the synagogue. But as soon as the sun has set, they flood the streets on their way to see Jesus for themselves. And along the way, they're asking one another, surely, they're asking one another, can it really be? They say that he can help. Is it true? Their enthusiasm is indicative of a broader human longing. They were afflicted by demons and sick with illnesses that threatened their lives, suffering the pain and anxiety that comes with living in this world. And here, right here in their own town, there is a glimmer of hope. Who wouldn't have gone running for it? Who wouldn't have reached for that? In our day, we're better at convincing ourselves that we are in control. We have technology, advanced medicine, insurance, all kinds of strategies that we've designed to help prevent and mitigate disaster. We're better at stifling the desperation that consumed so many of the people of Capernaum who had tried everything else and been left wanting. But when all those things fail, when all of our strategies fail, when all of our attempts to prevent disaster fail, we understand exactly why a crowd formed outside of Simon's door. Because until this moment, the world has been waiting for help. The world has been waiting for someone who can do something, and the king has come. Someone who can, with a touch, lift a fever. Without even uttering a word, silence a demon. 
Jesus is the answer to the hopes and the longings of the world, and the people of Capernaum are running toward him. Throughout our study of Mark's gospel, we're going to see over and over again how often he uses the word immediately. Two times in this passage, he uses the word immediately. And how Mark sets the pace of this book to move things along with some efficiency, more efficiency than the other three Gospels. Mark moves things, moves things along with some speed, but here in this passage, it isn't Mark who is moving things quickly. It is the people of Capernaum. We can think of this passage like a funnel, which starts out narrow in verse 29 with Jesus at Simon's house with his mother-in-law. But soon that funnel begins to open up, and by verse, by verse 33, the whole town is seeking after Jesus. In verse 37, the disciples will tell him that everyone is looking for you, and by verse 39, Jesus' ministry will have expanded to cover the whole region of Galilee. And all of that happens amazingly quickly, within 24 hours, because Jesus is able to help these people when no one else can. Their enthusiasm to meet him is evident of how quickly things are moving here. If you were lost in the wilderness and a rescuer arrived, you would rush to their side. You would move just as fast as your weary legs could carry you. The stories of the people of Capernaum and their religious leader with a sick child and the woman with a chronic illness that she's been dealing with for years and years that we'll meet later on in Mark, their stories are not unique. The world is full of the sort of suffering and affliction that defies remedy and explanation. And when a sliver of hope appears, people reach for it. When the people of Capernaum saw a glimpse of Jesus' power, they rushed toward him for more. Of course, we know that is not how everyone will respond to him. Already in this passage, there is an ominous foreshadowing of what is to come. As these crowds flock to Jesus, the seeds of opposition to him are sown as people who are currently in power feel the first tremors of a threat to their own authority. And it also reveals, this passage also reveals the heart of the crowds who have gone seeking after Jesus right now. They want to be near him because of what they have to gain from him. They want to be close to him because he can help them with their illnesses and with their afflictions. Most of the enthusiasm for Jesus in this crowd will not translate into faith in him because most of these people want relief from their burdens, not a relationship with Jesus. The reason is that they think that their biggest problem is their sickness, not their sin. And because of that, they misunderstand Jesus and what he's come to do. And beginning in verse 35, he has already begun disappointing them. Mark writes that rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus departed and went to a desolate, desolate place, and there he prayed. Even though it's only recorded a few times, specific times here in Mark, Jesus withdrew to pray often. For him, this was not just a priority or a habit, but a very necessary part of life. For all eternity up to his incarnation, the Father and Son have existed in perfect unity and communion with one another within the Trinity. Now, part of the humility that Jesus shows in the incarnation is that he has to pray like we do. So he sets an example for us. He makes prayer a priority and he takes it seriously. He doesn't just wait until he has time to pray. He makes time to pray. He gets up before anyone else is awake and goes to find a dark and quiet place where he can commune with the Father. 
While it's still dark and everyone else is still asleep, Jesus was outside in the stillness of the morning before the sunrise, glorifying the Father in the presence of the Spirit, praying. It wasn't an afterthought, something that he just did on the commute to work or as he was drifting off to sleep. It was not something he took lightly. And if the Son of God demonstrates his own need to draw near to the Father in prayer, how much more do we need the same thing? If Jesus seeking to carry out the responsibilities of his ministry, only does so after time in prayer, how much more do we need to do the same thing? So when the sun rises and the people of Capernaum come looking for him at Simon and Andrew's house, he's nowhere to be found. They start searching for him. The word Mark uses here when it says that they're searching for him uh, could easily be translated as elsewhere translated something like hunted him down. They aren't casually looking for him the way you look for a dollar that you've misplaced. They're looking for him the way that you would look for a million dollars that you've misplaced. You, you turn the house upside down looking for something like that. That is how Simon and the others who are looking for Jesus are searching after him with eagerness. He is the wellspring of God's wonder-working power that has just walked into their town, and he's worth more to them than a million dollars, and he's gone missing. So when they find him, in verse 37, Simon says, everyone is looking for you. It's a gentle rebuke, the way that they're saying this to him. It's like they're saying, what are you doing out here? This isn't where you should be. Don't you remember that crowd yesterday? They were lined up around the block. You should be back there making the most of this opportunity to build your brand and get a bigger crowd. They remember the day that they had yesterday with just a, a, a packed street outside of the front door, people eager to get a glimpse of Jesus. And now Simon and Andrew and James and John are hoping to capitalize on that moment. Later, the disciples will squabble amongst themselves over who gets to be seated closest to Jesus, who will have the place of the most honor and prestige. I think that they're enjoying the fact that everyone in town wants to be with their friend. But Jesus' response confirms that neither Simon nor the other disciples nor the crowds rightly understand him. Rather than going back to the house and to the crowd that is waiting there, Jesus leaves. He says in verse 38, let's go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. His ministry is bigger than Capernaum. It's even bigger than the signs and the miracles that he's been doing there. They want more of what they saw yesterday and Jesus wants to give them something even greater. C.S. Lewis once wrote that it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he simply cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. What the disciples and the people of Capernaum wanted more than anything was for Jesus to stay there and keep doing what he had been doing. But their hopes for Jesus are far too small, and they are too easily pleased with the dismissal of a fever or even a demon when what those signs are meant to point to is something of far greater and more lasting significance. They were right to look to Jesus and stand in awe of his power and authority. But the hope that they had was a small hope in a small promise. What they don't know, what they cannot see right now, is that Jesus' power is far greater than what they've seen so far, and also that the danger that he's come to rescue them from is far worse than they realize it is. 
They were like a stranded hiker who is relieved to see that someone with the ability to help has finally arrived, but they don't know that the real danger is just over the horizon, a raging wildfire which is closing in and will consume the whole area. Their joy in Christ's power is rightly placed, but it is inadequate. Because even though they are healed today, they will get sick again. Simon's mother-in-law will catch another cold, just like the crowds of thousands that Jesus will feed later on in his ministry will get hungry again. And if their enthusiasm for Jesus is predicated on the good health he's blessed them with today, it will evaporate tomorrow when a new affliction arrives, a new spiritual battle, a new threat of death. It is a small, weak, temporary joy, and it is easily broken. It is a temptation we share with the crowds in Capernaum. When we want relief, when we face the afflictions of our own lives, we are tempted to say, or at least to think, that if Jesus really loves me, he'll put a stop to whatever is causing me this pain. We cry out for, we long for his help and for relief from the afflictions that we face that we face in life, and we rightly pray to ask Him to move in ways that will lift those burdens from our shoulders, but we dare not think so little of Jesus that this is how He will prove His love for us. We underestimate Him at our peril. Like telling a rescue team in a helicopter that, no, I don't want to ride. I really just want a bottle of water. Thanks. Jesus hasn't come to make us more comfortable on our way to destruction. He's come to lift us out of the clutches of sin and death altogether, and he does it with a strength that breaks the power of both. Jesus goes to the cross bearing the sin of his people and enduring the wrath of God against our sin so that in his name we could be counted righteous. He carried that guilt into the grave, and then in the ultimate sign of his strength, he defeated death itself three days later. It is true what these people wondered about all the way back in this small fishing village in Galilee when they asked one another, could it be that someone who is actually able to help us is finally here, but their hopes were far too small for him? They don't know that Jesus is the one who will keep God's promise from Isaiah 25, where he says that he, the Lord, will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth. Here in chapter 1 of Mark's gospel, we see signs, the inklings, the first crumbs of what will be revealed in far greater measure as the book continues, the signs of his power to be revealed. Jesus is able to do what no one else can do. Next week, Mark will show us Jesus' heart, but right now he just wants to make sure that we do not underestimate him or set our hopes for him too low. He doesn't want us to ask too little of Jesus and miss the gospel altogether. Because these are just the signs of power that reveal that Jesus is the one who delivers us out of danger and into unburdened and everlasting joy. We set our hope on him not just for the afflictions that we face today, the illnesses, the troubles, and the burdens that are the daily lived experience of all fallen people living in a fallen world. We we do trust him to reign over those things in his sovereign grace, but our hope in him goes beyond those troubles to the cross itself and the empty tomb, where he wields his immeasurable, unimaginable power 
to set us free from suffering and affliction forever. Let's pray together and then praise him for this work. Father God, we rejoice this morning in the good news of the gospel. Jesus is our hope in life and in death because we know that he has authority over both. In love, he came to live among us and to die as one of us, to walk out of that grave in victory, and we ask that you would deepen our trust in him and to give us a deeper joy in this saving work. Father, as we face the burdens and afflictions of our lives, help us to know that your love for us is proved and poured out, accomplished once and for all time by the cross, and that our greatest enemy has been defeated in the show of strength of the empty tomb. We praise you today in the name of this Savior, our Savior and your Son. Amen.